All right, we are continuing together our study in our Confession of Faith in Chapter 22, dealing with the subject of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And we have been considering together paragraph one, which deals with the regulative principle of worship. And when we use the phrase, the regulative principle of worship, all we're saying is that there is a principle that regulates worship. Worship is regulated, just like every other aspect of life is regulated. Our marriages are regulated by the Word of God. And um, our uh, churches are regulated by the Word of God. Our conduct and behavior in the workplace is regulated by the Word of God. Well, worship is regulated by the Word of God as well. Now, there are principles that have to do with how our marriages are to be regulated. There's principles that have to do with how our child rearing is to be regulated. So there are principles that deal with how our worship is to be regulated. And so our confession says in the second half of paragraph one, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so God is the one who determines or regulates how he is to be worshiped. It says, and it is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so we see then that the standard with which God is to be worshipped is that nothing is acceptable in the worship of God except that which he has specifically authorized to be done. And so it's not like we can do it if he hasn't forbidden it. It's like we can only do it if he has positively commanded it. So we follow what's called the uh, exclusive principle regulative principle of worship, and um, that principle simply says nothing is acceptable unless it is specifically authorized. And so uh, we begin to look at four reasons uh, last time as to why uh, the confession sets forth that standard and why it is that we embrace that standard. And last time we saw the first of these four reasons And that was, it is the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms upon which sinners may approach him in worship. And so it's not like God says, I want you to worship me this way, this way, this way. And then we say, okay, that's fine. And we'll also add this and this and this because we think that's appropriate. Um, God is not someone who uh, is willing to receive uh, the worship that sinners have devised that would please them. He alone determines how he's going to be approached. And if he is approached in some other fashion, no matter how sincere or good intentioned, uh, he finds that approach and that worship offensive. We looked at Genesis 4 verses 1 through 5, where we saw that the worship of Abel was accepted by God because it was that which he had prescribed. The worship of Cain was an offense to God. God said his worship was, in fact, sin. 
and he uh, rejected that which he offered to him. So God did not have respect unto Cain's worship because he had not commanded that worship and therefore he would not embrace it. And then we looked at the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 in which we saw that not only did God's second commandment forbid the making of any likenesses of God and the worshiping of those likenesses, but it also stipulated that God is the one who decides how he is to be worshiped and what worship is acceptable to him. When God starts passing out commandments about how he is and is not to be worshiped, then we recognize that he is declaring a principle and the principle is he gets to decide how that's done. So he says, you're not to worship me with images. You are to worship me on the Sabbath day in this fashion. So we have both positive and negative commandments in the Ten Commandments with reference to worship. So it's arrogance for us to think that we should be the ones who determine how God is to be worshiped. Uh, in fact, God himself says in Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 32, I tell you how to worship. Uh, don't add anything to what I tell you. Don't take anything away from what I tell you. Just do exactly what I tell you. And so when Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15, he said to Timothy, I hope to come and visit you shortly, but I'm writing you this letter so that you might know how you ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so the point is, is that there is a way in which we ought to behave. That way is prescribed to us. We must learn what that way is and we must carefully follow it. So that then is a very brief summary of the first principle that helps us to understand the nature of the regulation of worship. And it is simply this. It is the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms upon which sinners may approach him in worship. Now, are there any questions about that before we move on to the second principle that we want to talk about? Okay, the second principle then that we want to introduce today is, is simply this. The introduction of extra biblical principles into worship. The introduction of extra biblical practices into worship inevitably winds up nullifying and replacing God's appointed worship. The introduction of extra-biblical practices into worship inevitably winds up nullifying and replacing God's appointed worship. And this is the reason why we do not uh, add our ideas to God's prescriptions with reference to worship because it's not very long before our ideas become predominant and his subordinate or else eliminated altogether. And so what you find happening is in places that uh, embrace the inclusive principle, regulative principle of worship, which says we have to do what God's commanded and we also may do anything that God has not expressly forbidden. And so they start introducing vestments and candles and, 
and uh, all sorts of rituals and activities into the worship of God, which um, God has not expressly forbidden. And what happens is ultimately as, as layers upon layers of, of, of the imaginings of men as to how God would like to be worshipped are added, the uh, things that he has prescribed get pushed into a smaller and smaller corner until they become uh, virtually non-existent. Now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 15. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Notice the question that's asked here. Matthew 15, verse 1, Then came Jesus to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples, now notice, transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, it, the question was not, Why do your disciples transgress the word of God? The question was, Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now Jesus asked them a question as well. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And he's going to address what that tradition is in a moment. But the point he's making in verse 3 is this. Human tradition was doing what to the commandment of God? Pushing it out, right? Okay? It was contradicting it. It was overwhelming it. It was suppressing it. And this is inevitably what happens when you bring human tradition alongside the commandment of God. Guess which one gets more attention, more prominence, and ultimately more respect? That which is proceeded from us, we think more highly of, than that which is proceeded from God because of our pride and our sense of self-importance, and how valuable we and our ideas are. Verse 4, now he tells what this tradition is and this commandment. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So the commands regarding parental respect and parental authority and parental honor. But you say, now here is their tradition that pushed those commandments out. Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honors not his father or his mother, he shall be free. And so what would happen is the Jews, of course, recognized the fifth commandment required part of the honor that, that children were to show to parents is that they were to care for them in their old age and uh, in their times of need, uh, as they advanced in years, and they would take all their possessions, and they would uh, formally dedicate them all to God, say, all that I own belongs to God, I've given it all to God. And so therefore, when the parent had a need, they said, well, sorry, mom and dad can't help you out because I don't have anything to give you, everything I have belongs to God. And it was a subterfuge, it was a way to, to avoid their responsibility to their parents, uh, by entering into uh, a, a legal formality, uh, a tradition of theirs, uh, whereby 
they could shield their assets from having to be used to help and bless their own parents. Now notice the last phrase in verse 6. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people draws near to me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now here it is, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So there was this vain worship that these Jews engaged in. And that va the vanity of the worship revolved around the introduction into that worship and service of God, humanly devised principles, laws, activities that ultimately wound up pushing out and pushing away and contradicting um, the will of God. And so what we have seen uh, in the Anglican Church, what we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church, what we've seen in churches which uh, embrace the uh, inclusive regulative principle of worship is that these churches and their services are just cluttered with all sorts of, of humanly invented forms, methods, and types of, of worship and worship activity uh, with the result that the true uh, activities of worship are either perverted, subverted, or reduced and minimized down to the point of being of, of virtually no consequence. So um, they're long on liturgy, they're long on ritual, they're long on impressive ceremony, but very short on preaching, on scripture reading, on prayer, and on um, the singing of, of the uh, biblical hymns. I remember when I was a boy growing up in Roman Catholic Church, we had zero hymns, none. The, the, we had zero preaching, none. All we had was uh, the Mass, which involved the reenactment of, of uh, the sacrifice of Christ, which of course was perverted as well in, in the practice of communion. And so, uh, as Jesus said, uh, they had transgressed the commandment of God by their tradition. Now, there's a second passage we want to look at, and that's in 2 Kings 16, 10 through 18. 2 Kings. Chapter 16, verses 10 through 18. In 2 Kings 16, verse 10, <clears throat> it says, And King Ahaz, who is the king of Israel, went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion or the pattern of the altar, according to all the workmanship thereof. 
And Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz coming back from Damascus. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar and offered burnt offering thereon. And he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his meat offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their meat offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according uh, to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases, and removed the labor from off them, and took down the sea from the brazen oxen that were under it, and put it upon a pavement of stones. And the covert for the Sabbath that they had built for in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. Now, without going into all the details of what happened, uh, a couple of things are clear. And one, as the king Ahaz went to Damascus, saw a pagan altar that was there, said, man, I like that. Let's import that into the worship of God. And he, and, he, and he has his craftsmen build one for him in the temple. And now the whole focus is around this. And he starts dismantling uh, the God-ordained uh, arrangement of the other uh, aspects of God's worship. Um, he takes the laver and he pulls it down off of the back's of the oxen, the 12 oxen that it sat on, which God had prescribed uh, that it be done in that fashion. And uh, he sets it down on the pavement and he moves this here and he moves that there and he, he changes things all around. And after a while, it becomes um, Ahaz's worship. It's no longer the worship of God. And so what we see here is once again, that which we were warned against in Deuteronomy 12, and that is looking to the world around us for methods and forms to inspire our worship and bring those methods and forms into the church and practice those as expressions of worship. And so when you go to churches nowadays and you watch their worship, it's way more like a Hollywood production than it is um, uh, something that, that arises out of the scripture because that's where they have looked to and that's where they have gotten their ideas from and brought them and introduced them into the worship of God because they say, well, it's, it's not forbidden. God's word doesn't forbid us to do these things. Uh, so what's the problem? And of course, the problem is, is that God has never commanded those things. And we'll see that under our fourth point, how, how serious that is. But what we see here. Uh, is that the introduction of extra-biblical practices into worship inevitably winds up nullifying and replacing the God-appointed worship. So we can't uh, 
take the simplicity that God has prescribed, add a whole bunch of stuff to it, and expect the simplicity which God has prescribed to continue to maintain prominence and its importance and its centrality. It gets pushed to the side and all the man-made stuff becomes uh, the focus and the center. All right, any questions or observations? Dave, did you have a comment? Interesting, in um, that passage you read, it said that their hearts were far from me. And I wonder if we followed the regulatory principle and we didn't include anything that was not prescribed, could it still, could there still be a tendency to have unbiblical worship? Just because we have the outward forms, could there still be the absence of unbiblical worship? Or is it just the form that God prescribes? And I guess one of the struggles, the Reformed Church at uh, this moment, and maybe historically, is often accused of being a very cold, unemotional, stoic, um, passionless community that find it almost sinful to smile and to express joy. And it's interesting that God wants us not only to worship in the right form, but with our hearts. And when we look at the biblical examples, for instance, uh, the generosity of Israel toward the building of the tabernacle, there is a heart response to anticipation of properly worshiping. When Solomon built the temple, Israel worshiped for seven days, and their joy of heart was so immense that Solomon authorized the continuation of celebration for another seven days. Uh, because they were, the response was in obedience to God's prescribed form of worship. In Ezra, the rebuilding of the temple and reformation, reading of scriptures, causes such an uproar of joy that it is heard outside the walls. They could hear a, a joyful response from those who were obedient to God's prescribed form of worship. And I wonder if is there a possibility that we can have all the right form and still not be worshiping God and with the heart? That is, it is my heart. I don't come here just to tick all the right form boxes and then walk away thinking, oh, I know God's pleased and I've just performed. But I think he wants a heart relationship to obedience to him. That causes such great joy in us to know that we're pleasing Him in obedience, that it impacts our singing, impacts our prayer, impacts our relationship to one another, to the point that it can be heard outside the walls of this building, <laughs> not in a physical sense, but in the lives that we live. People can look at us and say, "Why? What is different about you? You're just not." Christian, but there is a living joy in here. 
It's interesting that in Ezra it says that, well, I've lost that passage, but it says that they worshipped him with joy, which the Lord had given to them. And that is an interesting thing that I'm not sure I quite understand, but I want the Lord to give me a joy that is godly. And I think it will only come as we adhere to what you're teaching us from the heart, not just from the mind or from form. Because I genuflected in the Catholic Church and did all the form, but it didn't please anyone. Yeah, well, the form in the Catholic Church wasn't right, so even if your heart was in the right place, it would be wrong. But to answer your question, you know, is it possible to have all of the form right and yet have the heart absent? Absolutely it is. Um, uh, you know, the Bible says in, in John 4 and verse 24 that they who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we're talking about the issue of truth right now, we talked about the issue of spirit or the engagement of the heart in the first part of this paragraph when it says that he is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. So previously we were focusing on and stressing the need for the engagement of the heart and the totality of the inner man with all the energy and strength in the first part of paragraph one. And then now in the second part of paragraph one, we're talking about the form of the worship. And to be sure that we got the message, even in paragraph three of this same chapter, it says, prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted as to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, and according to his will. So there's the form, and now with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. And so this chapter emphasizes in several places the need for the engagement of the heart and uh, that it's not adequate to just have the accurate form. Um, it's, it's like you've got to have both. It's kind of like with the gospel, you know. Is the gospel about repentance or is the gospel about faith? And the answer is it's about both. And the same way with worship. Is worship about worshiping in spirit or is it about worshiping with proper form and content? Well, it's about both. And so while I'm emphasizing in this section the form, we've previously addressed the subject of the engagement of the heart and will continue to do so as we proceed through uh, these paragraphs. And, um, you know, one of the things that ought to characterize us in our worship is joy and exuberance uh, as the truth engages our minds and our hearts with reference to its implications. And that's why I encourage loud exuberant singing and uh, have, have addressed that issue before too. So your point is very well taken. Um, you know, a lot of people focus on the issue of the engagement of the heart and getting excited and being filled with joy at the expense of the proper form. And other people focus on the proper form at the expense of the engagement of the heart. But what I've seen in the Reformed tradition is where there's a very healthy emphasis on both of those aspects. And I think that the worship that I've experienced uh, in, in the Reformed tradition uh, engages both spirit and truth and uh, winds up being that which is pleasing to God. You had a comment, Max? Yeah, I was just going to say that 
Right, right. So there's a whole spectrum of emotions that you would experience in the process of engaging in the worship of God. But the point is you are emotionally engaged. You're not just going through a set of forms, but that you're actually interacting with the material, whatever it may be that Lord's Day, and uh, engaging your heart with reference to it. I'm reminded of, of three passages in relationship to this. It talks about the Jews that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Okay, and that's what you see a lot in charismatic churches, right? Where they're real zealous for God, but they haven't a clue about the truth or about how God is to be worshipped or, or anything like that. And then over in Revelation, it talks about the church at Ephesus, how that um, uh, he knew their works and their labor and their patience, how they could not bear them which were evil tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars, is born, has had patience, for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. And so here's people who are really zealous for truth, but he says, I have somewhat against thee, you've left your first love. And that is, your heart's grown cold, even in the context of, of truth and faithfulness and diligence. 
And, and, and I think the balance between they have a zeal but not according to knowledge and you know, they have, have, have knowledge but they've lost their zeal is the passage in Philippians 2 where Paul prays for the Philippians and he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve the things which are excellent. So love or zeal, if you will, the emotional part, runs between two, like a river runs between two banks, knowledge and judgment, okay? And so you have to have both. You have to have spirit and you have to have truth. And spirit without truth is chaos, and truth without spirit is formalism. And both of those extremes we want to stay away from, Pat. And this is short, Father. Jesus said that the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And, you know, even as we speak the scriptures and hear the scriptures or pray the scriptures, um, those are the words of the Holy Ghost. And I love it when people quote me. You know, it makes me rejoice. And I'm not saying this very clearly, but it also, the passage that when the disciples that I'm looking for were on the road to Emmaus, is that right, or whatever? Yeah, Luke 24. And, and after Jesus opened up the scriptures, they said, did not our heart burn within us? And there's a connection, and my point in bringing that up is probably had to do with being with Jesus, but also just hearing the word of God. If you're a true child of God, and this all comes down to the individual, it comes to what I'm going to do today, or what you're going to do today, or not do today. Have you determined in your heart, have I determined in my heart that I'm going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? But, if you're in a gospel church that has a form of godliness, and you're being confronted with the words that are spirit and life, you're going to if you if you're you know you got a lot going for you that you're gonna be um, in the spirit and you know worshiping the living God you know when, right when so so when you have the right form and you have the right content it's gonna stir up that heart that Dave's talking about Amen. right Amen. okay if you're saved yeah okay. Because what, what I've seen happen is, is, you know, we have, you know, good, solid preaching of the scriptures and good God honoring music and worship and, and scripture reading and stuff. And here's somebody sitting here just cold as a stone. It's like, the spirit isn't here. And I'm going, the spirit isn't in you. Okay. And then here's another person sitting over here hearing exactly the same thing, just rejoicing in the Lord and reveling in the truth and being sanctified and having issues in their life addressed and communing with God. Okay, and so, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the coldness and indifference in worship is the result of not a problem with the worship as with a problem with the heart of the individual. You know, there's just no connection there because there's no spiritual life. And um, so, right, but, but, you know, I mean, I'm a saved person, okay, and I've been in churches where the form of worship is just entirely a mess, I can't get my heart going with that because I'm so grieved and so offended for God's glory and honor being defaced and defiled that I can't get all stirred up and start, you know, 
getting excited about the worship of God. So I think that right form and content uh, comes first. And then the response to that then is a true engagement of the truly saved person's heart and spirit in interacting with that right content in, in that right form. Now, does that mean we can't do any worship unless uh, it's perfect? No. Uh, but it is to say that it can get to the point where it's so imperfect that worship becomes impossible. And, and so why do, we, why do we strive for and make a big deal out of having um, the right method of worship? Because God makes a big deal out of it. And because it's necessary for it to be right in its content and form in order for the worship, the spirit to fully rise to the level of worship uh, that God has called us to uh, engage in. And the reason why reformed worship is oftentimes called dead, and I've had a number of people come to our church and say, the spirit isn't there. Your worship services are deader than a doornail. And the problem is they're deader than a doornail, spiritually. Okay, uh, I had a woman come to this church. She sat here for 10 years, every Sunday virtually, without exception, and said to me at the end of that 10 years that she'd never gotten one thing out of my preaching. Now, is that a problem with my preaching? Yeah. Or is that a problem with her heart? Okay, and so... Um, you know, the worshiping in spirit uh, and lack thereof is, is often the result of the fact that an unsaved heart cannot interact with and respond to reformed, a.k.a. biblical worship um, because there's an unregenerate heart. All right, well, our time's gone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the time we've had together this morning. We pray, Lord, that our worship would be pleasing to you in its content and in its form, that it would be biblical. And Lord, I pray that our hearts then would engage that biblical form and that biblical content with zeal and enthusiasm and excitement, with joy and with overflowing thankfulness and humility. Father, we pray that uh, our hearts would uh, be near to you and that we would teach for doctrines the commandments of God. Father, we see that whenever it is that the commandments of men are being taught, that is when the heart is far from you. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to worship in spirit and in truth and not exalt one over the other as being more important, but have both together. Uh, Father, I ask that you would be pleased to receive our worship in the next hour. May it be according to the truth, and may it engage, and may we engage each of our hearts. And may we have zeal according to knowledge. May we have love of Christ of the most intense kind, coupled with and flowing out of the clearest declaration of the truth regarding him. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.